0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And when you found 1 Thessalonians If you would also find Revelation chapter 20 and hold on to that scripture. And then don't put your Bible down because you're going to need some more fingers. Uh, Might turn back to Isaiah and kind of hold that for a little while too because we're going to do quite a bit of reading in Isaiah. So these three chapters, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 or 3 places, Revelation chapter 20 and then just a few chapters in the book of Isaiah. The great and terrible day of the Lord... That is the way that the Old Testament prophets describe the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that is a very ominous description. It's a description that should strike fear into the hearts of any person that realizes that someday that he will come face to face with the Creator God. The Bible tells us that all of us must give an account of our lives And understanding the depravity of man and that according to Scripture that none can give a good account, there is no one who should look forward to the coming of Christ. That is, no one who has not been reconciled to God should hope that they would meet Jesus Christ face to face. If the penalty for a person's sins have not been settled by faith in the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then the great and terrible day of the Lord will bring destruction. Now, thankfully, we have this verse in Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The verse means that there is no judgment for those who believe in Christ. And so, if you can say that you are in Christ... There is no fear of His return. You are accepted in Him, and He will greet you as a favored child and heir to His inheritance. Now, in our text of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul wrote, beginning in verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety... Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The day of the Lord brings destruction upon the unbelieving world. Notice the way that Paul says this. For when they shall say peace and safety, the they here are unbelievers, they are people who have not trusted Christ. They are unaware. They believe that all is well with them, and they think there is peace and safety. But, Paul says, they will experience destruction. Every message that we bring here is a gospel message. Sometimes the appeal to come to Christ in faith comes in the middle of a sermon, Sometimes it's woven into the message in several places so that it's expressed in different ways and exhortations are made for you to trust Christ. Sometimes the appeal is at the end. Almost always we end with a word of encouragement for lost sinners to come to Jesus Christ. I remember a few years ago I had a conversation with my cardiologist. Uh, He was a, a Presbyterian in a liberal Presbyterian denomination, and his wife was a, was a pastor in, uh, in the Presbyterian church. And he said, aren't, aren't you people, aren't you, isn't your church one of those that has an appeal at the end? And I said, yes, we, we do do that. We do appeal for people to come to Jesus Christ. So often we have an appeal for people to come to Christ at the end of our sermons. But here in this message today, before I ever begin the sermon, there is an appeal. And the appeal is right here in the text that it is important that you understand the destiny of your soul. It is very important that you're settled about where your soul will spend eternity. And if you're unconcerned about your soul, then the message that I have to preach to you today will not concern you. Because you have no part in this glorious kingdom that I'll speak of today. You are the person that we read here in verse 3... Uh, who is an unbeliever who will suffer the wrath of God in your destruction. And that's not pleasant for me to tell you. That's not a good way you might not think to begin a sermon on Sunday morning, but it is the truth of God's Word. And I need to tell you what this text tells you. Now, if you'll look then in Revelation chapter 20, I ask you to have that open as well. In Revelation 20, in verse number 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such... The second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed are they who have part in the first resurrection. Now the first resurrection is the resurrection of believers in Jesus Christ. The first resurrection is to be raised from death to eternal life. And the scripture says here that this person in the first resurrection is not subject to the power of the second death. Maybe that would confuse you. What do we mean by the second death? Well, we all know the Bible says that it's appointed for people to die. This life will end. It's common knowledge that one day we will die. And the death of our physical bodies, that is the first death. The second death, the scriptures refer to is, uh The eternal death of the soul of the unbeliever. The second death is the judgment of God upon sin. And it's the punishment of the soul and body in the eternal flames of hell. Now this verse says that the second death is not an option for a believer. It says the second death has no power over the believer because his sins are judged in Christ. His punishment was taken by Christ on the cross. But the unbeliever dies the first death and then his destiny is the second death. And over him, the second death has all power because he'll suffer the torments of hell for eternity. And this is the reason that I say that you should fear the second coming of Christ. If you are an unbeliever, you have not been reconciled to God, and the wrath of God's punishment is on you, and the second death is on you, and there is just no good news in this verse for you. But we notice that in the rest of the verse there is very good news for the believer because it says the second death has no power over the believer, there is no hell for the believer, but instead it says we shall be priests of God. These are believer priests and they will reign with Christ in his kingdom. Now that's our subject today. The great and terrible day of the Lord ushers in the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand this kingdom. I want you to have part in the kingdom and that's the reason that I start the message today with an appeal. Be sure that your sins are forgiven. Be sure that you are in Christ or you'll never see this kingdom and you will come into condemnation. Now, we continue our study from two weeks ago. Uh, For several weeks leading up to our study of the millennial kingdom, we've discussed the terrible parts of the day of the Lord. The kingdom is preceded by tribulation. There is the Antichrist who will appear. There are birth pangs of calamity, as Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians. And these are preparations for the earthly kingdom of Christ that will last for 1,000 years. And so we began our study of the reign of Christ with our first observation about the kingdom. And we just called it the resplendent millennium. Our discussion is about the resplendent millennium. And resplendent means with glory, having great beauty and splendor. This kingdom that we speak of is real, real. While we understand that there is a spiritual kingdom of Christ that we enter into upon belief, here we're talking about a literal physical kingdom that was promised to come over the entire earth. The spiritual kingdom is a kingdom for believers only, but we're not discussing today the spiritual kingdom. Oh, The millennial kingdom is a... Literal, physical kingdom. There is a visible king in this kingdom. There is a capital in this kingdom. There is a ruling seat of government in the kingdom. There is physical territory that's controlled by the king of this kingdom. There are subjects of this kingdom. And these are people that live everywhere on this entire earth. The subjects of this kingdom are a mixed group. They are both believers and unbelievers in this kingdom. They live side by side and they're ruled by the perfect government of the king. The king is Jesus. His capital is Jerusalem. His seat of authority is the millennial temple. And the territory that he rules is this entire world. The subjects of his rule are every person, of every type, of every nation, of every part of the world. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom's of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This kingdom was prophesied long before you and I were born. Old Testament prophets confirmed it. The New Testament testifies to it. Christ and the apostles spoke of it. And the last book of the Bible is dedicated to explaining how that Christ will bring in this kingdom. Ancient cultures were aware of it. We learned that across the the centuries, ancient cultures believed that there would be a golden age that would come to this earth. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand who would rule in it, but they believed that it would come. And we know that there are people today who still expect the same thing. You hear it spoken of often that God has put it into the heart of people to believe that someday God's going to make all things right. Everything will be like it's supposed to be. They call it utopia, but neither do people today understand what this kingdom, the Bible talks about, is really like and who rules in this kingdom. Now, we do believe there will be peace and harmony and my job is to tell you the truth about it. Now we began our discussion last time about changes that will happen to the earth in the day of the Lord. There will be a different earth topography. The earth itself will change Uh, The tribulation that comes before this kingdom includes earthquakes and there are volcanoes, there are mountain ranges that will be shifted, islands of the sea will sink, there are areas of land that we leveled out, and that will bring great advantages to promote the welfare of the kingdom. Some people say that they like this part of California, they love Sonoma County because of the weather. Probably not too much today, those visiting from other places... Don't think much of our weather today. I don't know if we have perfect weather here. But I can tell you this. That the weather of God's kingdom. The millennial kingdom will be perfect. It will be perfect for production. For work. For recreation. And for worship. And if you want to learn more about the topographical changes that we discussed. You can check out the many comments that were made uh, in the last message. But I want us to go on now to consider other things. Other features of the kingdom. This world will be different in its topography so that every place is habitable and enjoyable. There is a different earth topography. And then next we learn in the scriptures that there is a different life expectancy. Simply stated, people will live longer. Why do they live longer? Well, we have some insight into one of the reasons in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus had much to say about the kingdom, And his activity when he was here on this earth was a prelude to what life will be like in his kingdom. In Matthew 9, verse 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, that's what you get when Jesus is here. And in the millennial kingdom, Jesus will be here. There won't be any need of hospitals. The king is a gracious healer. He is the ruler and a healer. And and I believe it's possible that even saints of God in that time will have ability to, to heal. They'll have the gifts of the spirit in them. They'll heal. And so there's really not any need for doctors and hospitals. And I'm happy for that because my wife and I have seen too much of hospitals. And so my apologies to Kaiser and their stockholders. We won't need you in christ 's kingdom the kingdom will the king will end world hunger. the millennial kingdom will have abundant harvest from the changed topography so that food can grow anywhere and I can imagine that when the kingdom comes we won 't need all the processed foods that we eat I think uh, Sheila will be so happy to get into the millennial kingdom because then she won't be able to say everything that you eat is bad for you. Um, But you can actually eat. Her family will be able to eat in the millennial kingdom. Every place then becomes a garden of fruits and vegetables. It's all abundant. It's a wonderful place to live. It will be. Dr. Henry Morris believed that this earth will be much like or more like the antediluvian world. If you don't understand that, antediluvian simply means before the flood. And it was Morris's opinion that the world's oceans will be reduced in volume by water vapor returning to a canopy over the earth that covers it like a greenhouse. And he says this canopy will block out harmful solar radiation and that's what accelerates the aging process. You remember reading scripture that before the flood, Methuselah, lived 969 years. You read all of those uh, patriarchs before the, the flood came, and you see these long, long ages that people lived, and it was incredible. And Morris believed that they were protected from solar radiation by a vapor canopy. And then after the flood was over, the canopy was gone, and so the ages of people gradually became shorter until the length of life that we see today. And so by the time in scripture that you get to Joshua, centenarians were a thing of the past, and as I said, Morris believed that solar radiation was the culprit. And so if this is the way that God chooses to do it, then what happens when this when this canopy is replaced? What happens if the king heals all of diseases? What happens if he provides better foods with no carcinogens? What happens when when everybody has plenty of good food to eat? Does the Bible tell us what will happen? Well, it does. Now, if you have your Bibles there, turn to Isaiah chapter 65. Here is a millennial prophecy that speaks of life in the kingdom, and it addresses this subject. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be heard no more in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more therefore and thence an infant of days, nor an old man that have not filled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Now that is a promise that everything that God's people put their hands to will prosper. Like Adam in the garden of Eden, crops will grow abundantly and there's always a rich, rewarding harvest. People will live longer. There aren't any childhood diseases. There is no murderous Planned Parenthood. Uh, Nobody's going to cut up babies and sell them for body parts. There are no political parties that legalize infanticide. And so at hundred years old, a person will still be considered a child. Now if you look at the last part of verse 22, it says, For as the days of a tree are the days of my people. Take a trip to Garberville. After you get through the marijuana fields and the meth labs, then you come to the Humboldt Redwoods, and some of the trees you find there are up to 2,000 years old. In other words, those were trees that were growing when Jesus was here. In the Sierras, there are trees that are 4,000 years old. Those are older than Moses that even go all the way back to Abraham. In the millennial kingdom, people will grow old and grow old and still grow old, or maybe better said, they never grow old. And we don't know if Isaiah's prophecy means that people will be as old as redwoods because the millennium will end at 1,000 years. But some do believe that those that are alive at the beginning of the kingdom will still be living at the end of the kingdom and they'll be spry and active and ready to go on as if it would last another 1,000 years. And so with long life and better food, with no infanticide, with no disease, with no euthanasia, with no Democrats, the world's population will explode So billions of people will will die in the tribulation, but the world is going to be filled up again in the millennium. Many places that weren't habitable will be habitable. All the topographical changes will change this earth so that living on this earth, it's not going to be a population problem with all these people that are born and never die if they don't in the millennium. So it's a glorious place. It's a golden age. It is the resplendent millennium. And this is what you get when you have a king who has the power of life and death. And this is what you get when the devil is not here to destroy. Well, going a little bit further in the study, what, what will this kingdom be like? Why, why were people in Bible times so hopeful of it after reading these texts? I think one of the most interesting aspects is what God will do with animals. Uh, This part is for the animal lovers. God is going to change the relationship between people and animals and also how animals relate to other animals. So our third observation is about the difference in animals relationally. One of the strangest things that you'll hear anyone say is that animals have rights. Or even worse, that people are animals too. Now, if you believe in evolution, people are animals too. You've heard of the human animal. But no, the Bible doesn't teach that. People are not animals, even though we we do agree that many people act like animals. But we're not descended from fish and amphibians and mammals and monkeys. God created man as a man. Adam was a fully functional man. ...that God made in his image. Animals were a separate creation. They are not made in the image of God. And so the soul of an animal... ...has no commonality with the soul of a man. Well, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to respect all of his creation... ...because he does. But we do need to understand that animals are not on par with man... ...and they don't have rights as people have rights. Man was created to have dominion over the animals... But I think it's, it's true nonetheless that Adam's relationship before the fall was different with animals than it was afterwards. You see, God does want us to respect his creation and he doesn't want us to be cruel to animals. I mean, cruelty is just a manifestation of the depravity of our hearts and people that are cruel to animals will end up, in fact, being cruel to humans. But let me say also, God doesn't want anybody to treat animals as if they are more valuable than humans. Now, God doesn't want you to cruelly kill puppies. But when the penalty for killing a puppy is more serious than cutting the spinal cord of a human baby, then you can expect God's judgment. New York, Virginia, Vermont, and others that have laws on their books that permit the killing of babies also have laws that say you better not touch a puppy. So it's hard to argue, I think, animal rights when people have the right to eat animals. It's, it's hard to argue that animals are people too. When God said, you dare not sacrifice a human, but he demanded that Israel sacrifice thousands, even millions of animals. But in the millennial kingdom, there are two changes of relationship with animals. They change in relation to man and they change in relation to each other. Now let me take you back just a moment to the original creation before sin entered the world. In Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. You might want to underline that part in your Bible. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse number 19, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would name them. And whatsoever Adam called, every living creature was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle And to all fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. It appears before there was sin that Adam was never afraid of any animal, neither were animals afraid of him. Before sin, there was no such thing as an enemy. Before sin, there was no animosity, and so the entire creation was in peace and harmony. Adam walked freely through the garden. He never feared that as he walked through the lush undergrowth that there was a scorpion lurking that would bite him. He never worried that he would brush up against the web of a black widow spider and be bitten. And I I can't even wonder about that. Did, Did spiders weave webs before sin? I don't know, because even flies were good then, if you can imagine. Adam wasn't afraid of a lion or a tiger. Or as Napoleon Dynamite might say, he was not afraid of a liger. And uh, those of you didn't know that one. But it could be that Adam's brain was so highly developed that he could actually communicate with animals. That he could get into their wavelengths, sort of like Tarzan. Uh, he could communicate with animals. But then sin came, Adam fell, and the world changed. Before sin, there was no death. And so Adam would never harm an animal, and an animal would never harm him. Before sin, God never demanded a sacrifice because there was none that was needed. Adam lived under a covenant of works. If he obeyed God, then his eternal life was assured. But then Adam disobeyed. He sinned. And there was no way that Adam could do himself, undo himself what he had done. And so Adam couldn't fix his problem. Only God could do it. And the way that God did it must have been a shocking method to Adam. Adam must have been totally surprised and this must have shook him to his core to see what God did. What would it take to restore fellowship that had been broken? God was serious about it. And how serious was Adam's transgression? It was serious enough that it stunned Adam because God killed animals. And he clothed Adam with their skins. And he showed Adam a prototype of sacrifice that it would take the death of another to satisfy him for what Adam did. Adam fell. The goodness of God in him was lost. The image of God in him was marred. Adam lost righteousness and his righteousness was maintained by obedience. And so when Adam fell, he lost any ability to be righteous again. And so God had to replace his obedience with the obedience of another. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. His righteousness is the satisfaction of God's law. And his his sacrifice, his death and the atonement that he made is the only righteousness by which we can be saved. And so the sacrifice of animals in the garden was God telling Adam, this is the only way that any man from here and forever will ever be made right in God's eyes. The only way that will ever be done is if God does it himself. God must make us righteous. So there in the garden, the relationship with animals changed. And even though spiritual death at that point became a reality, it also appears that it wasn't yet that Adam began to kill animals for food. And there might not have been an immediate change in animals to become predator and prey. But things were different since sin entered the world. Now we're on a downward spiral. Now things are heading downward. And so there developed this hostility between men and animals because of a curse that God put on the world. And the curse that God put on Adam was a world curse as well. How many of you hate spiders? I think most of you do. How many of you are afraid of snakes? And how many of you would dare go to the San Francisco Zoo and crawl over the wall to get into the cage with the lions? You're not going to do it. We used to live in in Angwin uh, in the middle of the forest up above Napa Valley. And there were scorpions and rattlesnakes and bugs of every kind. And we came home from church one night and it was dark. And as we walked down the, the dark path to go to the house... Uh, We started down the steps, and I heard a rattle. And immediately I said, told my wife, don't take another step. Don't take another step. And so we walked around the other way, turned on the light, and there we found that a rattlesnake was coiled up on the step. And that rattlesnake was saying, don't you dare step here. So we have this fear of animals. Animals will harm us, the right kind of animals. And all of that's a result of the fall. But in the millennial kingdom, God's going to change that. And and there are some things in the Bible that tell us about the change that God will make. So you're still in Isaiah, I think, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 11. We find something here about it. This is probably the most familiar scripture to you uh, concerning this. It demonstrates two changes of relationship with animals. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb... And the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young one shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you see two changes? The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard leopard will lie down with the goat. A calf and a lion will be best buds. That's animal to animal. A change in relationship so that natural enemies, predator and prey are no more. Lions won't eat other animals, but they'll eat provender like the ox. And in these verses, there's also the change of the relationship of man to animals. You notice there that it says, a little child shall lead them. You go to Africa today and see what happens when a little child steps out into a a field with lions. In the millennial kingdom, nothing will happen. A child will play with a lion like he plays with a house cat. A child will handle a snake without fear because none are poisonous. Now in Isaiah 65:25 it says the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like a bullock and dust shall be the serpent's meat they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains saith the Lord. Now both passages that we read in Isaiah mention the wolf and the lamb and I think the Bible's emphatic about that and it uses uh, th- this particular animosity between these two animals Because the Bible could have mentioned any animals that that are natural enemies. But it mentions the wolf and the sheep. And the wolf, I, I think this is emphatic for Israel because the wolf was always a loathsome animal. Because Israel's occupation was mostly that of sheep herders. And the wolves were always trying to destroy the sheep. And that's the shepherd's livelihood And so this antipathy between wolf and sheep is used many times by Jesus and the apostles to describe false teachers. That false teachers want to destroy God's sheep. False teachers are Satan's wolves that want to destroy God's people. And this is what Paul warned the Ephesian church about when he left there. He said, grievous wolves will enter in among you. They're going to harm the flock. But in the millennial kingdom, the wolf loses its reputation because we read here that there are no animals that will hurt or destroy in all of the kingdom. All predation will stop and all animals will go back to being herbivores. Now we have yet another prophecy. This is in Ezekiel. If you'll turn to chapter 34 in Ezekiel. And, and this one is uh, really interesting to me because we've been studying on Sunday nights about the tabernacle and uh, what Israel was doing previous to going into the land of Canaan. And there in the worship of the tabernacle, we've studied all of those things. And we remember the promise that God made to Israel. Uh, he said, you're going to be able to possess the land. You are to go in and drive out the Canaanites. But there was a reason that, that God had that the conquest of Canaan would take quite a while to do. Now, he told them to to kill the Canaanites that are in the land, but they weren't driven out immediately and suddenly. And so the conquest of Canaan took several years, and God directed that it, it should happen this way. Do you remember the reason? Well, God said, because wild animals will take over areas that Israel was not ready to quickly inhabit, not quickly populate. And so God left Canaanites in the land for a while, Because Israel wouldn't have been able to deal with all the wild animals that take over vacant land. Now, this is the background then for this passage here in Ezekiel 34, verse number 25. It says, And I will make with them a covenant of peace, and I will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land. And they, that is the people, shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Now, when the kingdom comes... There will be vast areas that can't be populated, vast areas that are now uninhabitable will be made habitable because all of the land will be leveled out and the billions of people that died during the tribulation are going to be replaced by that population that I spoke of a moment ago. And the population must grow before these areas can be populated and so if the disposition of animals was not changed then wild animals would take over and there would be no Evil, there would be uh, all of these evil beasts. Well, there aren't any killing beasts in the millennium. None of them is going to harm anyone, so it really doesn't matter. People can travel into these areas and they can pitch a tent in the woods. They can sleep there with no fear. No need to carry a 30 30. No need for bear spray. Smokey the bear will sit down with you and smoke. Well, that's not exactly right. Um, he won't smoke. And there are no forest fires and there are no smokers in the millennial kingdom. But my point is that you won't have to worry about wild animals. Pitch the tent, go right on, sleep outside. It really doesn't matter. Now, there, there's a passage in the New Testament that alludes to these changes. It's a very important passage that might get a little bit lost and misunderstood by all the great doctrinal issues that are going on around it. And this is Romans chapter 8. I'd like you to turn there if you would. Our Romans class is familiar with this because we poured over this chapter for many weeks. Schofield wrote that chapter eight is the highest spire of cathedral or highest spire of the cathedral of Christian truth. And a good understanding of chapter eight will change your life, and this will give you a, a perspective of God that most people don't understand. That that's all in the doctrine of chapter eight. So if you learn chapter eight in Romans, you'll know God better. But in the middle of all of these outstanding doctrines that are discussed, Paul made a reference to the millennial kingdom. Now, studying the passage, you know that there was a purpose for the reference, and we don't have time to go into that now. But we would expect that he would speak of some other aspect of the kingdom as we've just done. Maybe he would speak of topographical changes, or perhaps about life expectancy changes, or perhaps the righteous rule in the kingdom. But that's not what he brings up here. Look at what he mentions in verses 18 through 23. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, that is futility, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption to wit, the redemption of our body." We are waiting for the redemption of our body. Well, what is that? That's the resurrection. That's when the mortal body is raised and glorified. And the resurrection is the signaling event of what? That's the signaling event of the announcement, or is the announcement of the day of the Lord. Now, what does Paul mention in connection with it? Well, he talks about animals. He speaks of the entire creation, animate and inanimate, that the glory of God revealed in the millennial kingdom, we his people, we our glory will be revealed in that kingdom, and also animals receive a benefit from it. Now you see in the passage where the blame lies for our current condition, the Bible's clear about this, that all the problems that we have are, are caused by man. It was the sin of man that did this. The animals have nothing to do with that. The animals were just standing by. They didn't do anything because they're not moral creatures. Animals are not created in the image of God. It is man that's responsible for the curse that fouled up the animal kingdom. And so because of this curse, God put animals in bondage. Animals were subject to the curse because of what Adam did. And God cursed the entire creation. But what does verse 21 say? Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creature, that is the animals, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. That bondage is the effect of man's sin. And so the creature will be returned to the liberty of the pre-fallen state of Eden. Now admittedly, when you study this, the interpretation of these verses depend upon the view that you have of the millennial kingdom. Now here we believe in interpreting scripture literally... And because we do, we can very easily see the connections and how this fits perfectly into the prophecies of the Old Testament that we've just read. You can't get this any other way unless you treat it literally. Now I might also add that the inanimate creation was affected by the fall. The ground was cursed too, wasn't it? Thorns and thistles grew up. So that God needs to send rain on the just and on the unjust. And so the whole creation metaphorically yearns to be delivered from the curse. Well, this might freak you out just a little. And I'm going to end here to give you something to think about. What if we lived in the millennium right now? What if it was here right now? Well, if it was here right now, bugs and spiders and snakes might be crawled up in bed with you. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but they say, unaware to you at night, that the spiders come out and they crawl over you. They get into your bed. You don't know it, but you're sharing space with spiders. You can think about that when you go to bed tonight. But I really don't want to end on that note. So let's go back to the very beginning. I began with an appeal you need to think about where you stand in relation to the coming kingdom of Christ. What part will you have in His kingdom? Are you going to have a part in it? Or will the second death overwhelm you? Will the second coming of Christ be your destruction, not your hope? Folks, these are things that need to be settled right now in this life. There's no time for you to do this later. You don't know the hour that you're going to die. I'm sure that some of you will go home today and at the end of the day, perhaps you'll turn on the news and there you'll hear that somebody died unexpectedly. Someone was killed on the highway. Didn't expect that they would die today, but they lost their life. And most likely, it will be a person that doesn't know anything about Jesus Christ. They leave this life suddenly and they're headed for the second death. The Bible says that we need To understand the day of salvation is now. The hour to be saved is now. We must come to Jesus Christ now. Because we don't know the day that we're going to die. We're going to have to face God one on one. We're going to look into the face of our creator. And I wonder what he's going to say to us. What will he say to you? I hope that he'll say, you believe me. So I'm going to take you into heaven to be with me. That's the only way that you'll ever be righteous with God. That is by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins and faith in his blood to save you from your sins. That's what it takes to see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for what we've read in your word today. Such wonderful and precious promises that are made uh, to your people. But as we've noted, Lord, there is nothing here for the unbeliever. Nothing that will help them. All that we see here is destruction. And that destruction is even worse for a person who sits here today and, having heard all of this, rejects Christ as Savior. There is great importance, a great need for the soul to come to Jesus Christ right now. ...having this information. And Lord, we do expect and look forward to the day that you will return. As your people, we look forward to that great kingdom that you will bring to the earth. And all of these things are recorded in the word of God... ...so that we might know the wonderful, precious promises that will come to those who are believers in you. Help us, Lord, to see it, understand it, and even tell the world about it. Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come. That was an evangelistic appeal... Thy kingdom come. We want people to be saved and be in the kingdom. Bless your people today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.